We are an impatient people living in an impatient society. Because time is of the essence, we don't walk when we can drive, and we don't drive when we can fly. Apparently, fast food is not even fast enough because today, McDonald's delivers to your door. I think to myself, it's only in an inpatient society like ours that we can complain that the internet speed is not fast enough, that the commercials during the ball game are far too long, the scan and go at the grocery store is far too time consuming, and who among us ever has time to wait for the next available operator? We live in a world that we are extremely impatient. If patience is a virtue, I think that most of us have concluded that it's okay for us not to be virtuous. It's with these thoughts in mind that you and I come to James chapter 5. This morning we continue our study of that New Testament book in a sermon that's simply entitled, Hurry Up and Give Me Patience. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 5, let me begin at verse 7. I'll conclude at verse 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Uh, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In our passage, Pastor James reverts back to a common theme of suffering. He admonishes the congregation that in the midst of your suffering, be patient. Now that word is wise. It is good advice. Because you and I realize that impatience can bring a hefty consequence. All we have to do is just look through a couple of characters in the Bible to prove the point. Abraham was impatient. The result, Ishmael was born. Moses was impatient. And it robbed him of the glorious opportunity of escorting the people of God into the Holy Land. Peter was also impatient. As he stood there on that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he almost became a murderer when he lopped off the ear of that Roman soldier. Yes, when you and I are impatient, it always carries a hefty high consequence. So Pastor James is wise when he tells the congregation that in the midst of your suffering, you ought to be patient. 
That leads us to the question, what is patience? I like what Warren Wiersbe wrote when he defined patience as staying put and standing fast when you want to run away. That's patience, staying put, standing fast, even when you feel like running away. When diabolical difficulties attack your marriage, be patient, which means stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. When the job is overwhelming, when the boss is unbearable, be patient, stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. When it is a problem to raise your son or daughter and you want to throw up your hands in despair, be patient, which means stay put, stand fast, even when you feel like running away. You and I endure trouble and tragedy. We have sickness and suffering. And in those moments, James tells the congregation what I tell you today, be patient. Oh, but how long? Do I have to be patient, you may ask. And James gives an answer, and I quote, until the Lord's coming. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? We've got to be patient with people and problems and predicaments until Jesus Christ returns? We've got to be patient with our spouse and our children and our grandchildren. We've got to be patient uh, with our classmates and teammates and roommates. We've got to be patient with uh, our obnoxious neighbors, our uh, just difficult church members. We've got to be patient with the woman at the grocery store that never smiles. We've got to be patient with the customer service rep on the other end of the phone who at best speaks broken English and you're convinced must be in a sweatshop in Calcutta. Are you kidding me? We've got to be patient until Jesus comes back and the simple biblical answer is yes we have to be patient until Christ returns I've heard people say what you've heard people say I don't pray for patience because if I pray for patience then God will send me some test to teach me patience brother sister it doesn't matter if you pray for it or not you and I have to demonstrate it until Jesus comes back. So whether you ask for it or not is really a mute point. You and I have to demonstrate patience, staying put, standing fast, even when we feel like running away, until Jesus comes back. So when is Jesus coming? Have you ever thought and come to the conclusion that most people want the return of Christ when they are suffering? When things are going well, we think to ourselves, it's really not a good day for you to come back, Jesus. Maybe you just came into a large sum of money. Maybe today is the day that you're going to get married. Uh, maybe you're about to take the trip of a lifetime. You think to yourself, Jesus, this is really not a good day for you to come back. Can you come back next week or next month? Oh, but in moments of suffering, that's when we want Jesus to come back. Just diagnosed with heart disease, just experiencing a vicious car wreck, just been told that you are now unemployed, in those moments you say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
We want you to come back now. But the question is, when is Jesus going to return? The only hint that Pastor James gives us comes in verse 8. That the Lord's coming is near. That word near in the Greek language can be understood either spatially or temporally. What I mean is this, that it could be spatially in the sense that something is near, it's close by. It's in close proximity, like the first row is near to me right now. But there's another understanding of near that's not spatial, but it is temporal. It is near in the sense of the next thing on the timetable. And let me tell you, friends, I think it's this second understanding of near that James has in mind. He's looking at the cosmic clock. He's looking at the, at, the, at the sovereign timetable of redemptive history. And he is saying to the church, I want you to hold fast. I want you to stay put. I want you to be patient because big brother Jesus is soon coming. His return is near. Friend, do I need to remind you this morning that it won't be long until Gabriel will sound the trumpet. It won't be long until Jesus peels back the clouds. It won't be long until Jesus mounts his white horse. It won't be very much longer till he puts on that royal robe dipped in blood. It won't be long till you peek over that eastern sky and you see that Jesus is coming for his church. His second coming, his return is near. And so you and I ought to be patient in the meantime because we know that soon and very soon Jesus is He's going to come back and rescue his church. So in the moment, we have to be patient. So what does that look like? How can we be patient in the midst of trouble and tragedy, stress, and difficult situations? Well, like a good pastor and preacher, James gives us three illustrations. He says, I want you to have the patience of a farmer verses 7, 8, and 9. I want you to have the patience of the prophets, verse 10. I want you to have the patience of Job, verse 11 and 12. First, James tells the church, we ought to have the patience of a farmer. One of my favorite farmers is a man that none of you know. His name, Danny Cobb. Danny was a good old boy farmer in the very first church that I pastored, and it was on more than one occasion that he would tell me, now, preacher, you got to understand something about us farmers. Farmers ain't never happy. Either there's too much rain, and we are fearful that the crops are going to rot in the field, or we complain about not enough rain, thinking that the crops are going to burn up in the drought. But preacher... The good Lord knows what we need. That little tagline became a conversation piece that Danny and I would oftentimes have. That in the summer, in the heat, and there would finally be a rain shower. We'd get together on Sunday and I would look at him and I would just say, the good Lord knows what we need. And in those moments after the spring rain and the sun would uh, come up and warm the growth of the ground, we would meet on Sunday and he would look at me and he would say, Pastor, preacher, the good Lord knows what we need. 
Every farmer understands that he has to be patient because God knows what he's up to. God knows what we need. James says that the farmer is patient in the spring and autumn rain. He's patient. Why? Because James says that the land will produce a valuable crop. Why does the farmer wait for the harvest? Because the harvest is worth it. That's simply why the farmer waits. The farmer waits because the harvest is worth it. Eventually, that land will produce a valuable crop. That phrase, valuable crop, literally is precious fruit. What's interesting is that uh, Peter uses that same Greek word for precious in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, when he's talking about the blood of Christ. He calls it that precious blood of the Lamb. So it's, it's precious, it's valuable. And the land produces a precious, valuable fruit or crop. And the farmer waits because he knows that the harvest is coming and the harvest is worth it. So in the meantime, James says, stand firm. This word, stand firm, means strengthen your heart. Don't be discouraged, be encouraged. Strengthen your heart. Some have said it's a military term, meaning to stand fast. Don't let anything wave you off your point. Don't let anything distract you. Don't let anything knock you down. Don't let anything knock you off guard. You continue to do the work and will of God. You strengthen your heart. Stand firm. James is ending the letter the same way he began the letter. You remember he comes rushing out of the gate. Chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Consider it pure joy when you have stress. Consider it pure joy when you have difficult situations. Consider it pure joy when you are suffering insurmountable experiences. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now how is it that we can have joy? How is it that we can stand firm? It's simply not the fact, not the truth that, that, that we consider the experience joyful no we have every right to say that this cancer stinks the death of my child is overwhelming and it is terrible that the financial difficulty that I'm enduring you may think to yourself is something that that is that is horrible it's perfectly fine to say that a situation is terrible but our joy is not in the situation our joy is in the savior our joy is not in the mess, but our joy is in the Messiah. Our joy is not in the crisis. Our joy is in the Christ. Because we are convinced that Jesus is bigger than all of our problems. So our joy is not in the cancer. Our joy is in the Jesus who's bigger than the cancer. Our joy is not in divorce. Our joy is in the Jesus who's bigger than the divorce. Our joy is not in the death of a loved one. Our joy is in the Jesus who is bigger than the death of a loved one. James says to the church, I want you to have the patience of a farmer. I want you to be one who is patient and steadfast. I want you to be one who stands firm. And don't let anything move you off your point. Don't waste your time grumbling, he says. This is about the fifth time that he has reverted back to the topic of 
speech. James is only five chapters long. In every stinking chapter, there's a conversation about the tongue. We, we read of it in chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 12, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 1, here in chapter 5, verse 9, on at least five occasions in a very five-chapter, very short five-chapter book. Pastor James said something about speech. Now, now, why would he have to talk about speech so much? I guess because it's a problem for good godly people. Let me ask you this. Uh, when you're enduring stress and suffering and trouble and tragedy, do you uh, tend to be uh, tight-tongued or loose-lipped? If you're anything like me, there are moments in the heat of the moment, that I can say something that I later regret. And here, James cautions me and maybe even cautions you. Listen, don't, don't grumble. Don't grumble. You be steadfast. You be patient. Don't miss the lesson of the farmer. Because the farmer, while he waits, he works. Don't miss that. I've never known any farmer to be lazy. Every farmer I've ever known constantly works even as he's waiting for the harvest. He tills the ground. He plants the seeds. He weeds the garden. The farmer is always working from sunup to sundown. Don't miss the lesson that James is communicating to the church. The les lesson of the patience of the farmer is keep working. Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep working the word and will of God in your life. Keep working. Keep at it. Don't let anything discourage you, distract you, keep you from doing what God has crafted and called you to do. Keep working, James says. You see the patience of the farmer, and it's the lesson that we ought to keep working. But secondly, he says, we ought to have the patience of the prophets. Verse 10. Let me ask you the question, why does James elevate the prophets as an example for us? He says that the prophets are a great illustration of facing trials and facing suffering. And while they faced those trials and suffering, they demonstrated faithful obedience. Jesus talked about the prophets in the Beatitudes. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice, be glad. Why? Because they did the very same thing to the prophets. James, the little brother of our Lord, he says, I want a beatitude. I, I want to have a beatitude in my book. So he's got one right there. Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. And when he has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life that God has promised. There's always this imagery that the prophets, the people of God, they persevere in the midst of suffering. And if you think about the prophets, many times they suffer not because they did anything wrong, but because they did everything right. Think about Elijah. 
Elijah stood in front of the most powerful man in all of Israel and said to wicked King Ahab, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. After Elijah gave that James Spann meteorological report, the prophet of God simply nodded his head, turned around, walked away, leaving King Ahab stunned. The reason he was stunned is because Baal was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast. And Elijah was saying that you have led the people of God to the false worship of Baal and God is going to judge this nation. What's ironic is that Elijah had to experience the drought right beside everybody else. He wasn't privileged. He he wasn't given a, a space and place where he did not have to endure the drought. No, he had to endure it as well. And yet in that moment, he continued to be faithful to God. Consider Daniel. It is said of Daniel that he set it upon his heart not to defile himself before the Lord. Daniel was committed and convicted about prayer. As air is to breathing, so prayer was to the life of Daniel. Uh, Daniel could not go a day without praying. In fact, the Bible says that he prayed three times every day. And as he prayed three times every day, he would ask God for help. There was a decree that was given by the king that said, uh, if anybody prays to any other man, any other God besides me, that person will be thrown into the lion's den. I'm sure that there were some friends of Daniel that told him, hey, pipe down on the praying so much. It's only 30 days. Just go 30 days without praying. And Daniel would have looked at them and said, can you go 30 days without breathing? No, I I can't go 30 days without breathing. And so he went and he began to kneel to pray. He prayed in front of open windows. Some of the people that had uh, tricked the king into this edict, they saw Daniel praying. They went back and ratted him out. And the king had to throw Daniel into the lion's den. The reality is, is that the lions were in Daniel's den. Daniel wasn't in the lion's den because God was in charge. He was in control and God delivered Daniel, but Daniel still had to be thrown into that lion's den. And all the while, he was faithful in his obedience. Oh, consider with me Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Hebrew boys. They said, we will not bow down to this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has constructed. And so because of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And as they were there, an angel of God came and walked among the flames. Uh, You don't have to agree with me, that's okay, but I'm convinced that that angel was none other than Jesus Christ. I think that Jesus came and he walked with them and, and, and protected them. You've heard of dancing with the stars. I think this was dancing with the Savior. And I think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there under protective custody of the Lord Jesus himself. Nebuchadnezzar, who had pulled up a chair to watch them fry and burn, said, now wait a minute, we threw three guys in there and now there's four guys walking around unbound, unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. And everybody was shocked and surprised that they were not burned, not a hair on their head was singed, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. All the while, they were faithful to God. Perhaps you've heard it said 
that the will of God will not lead you anywhere where the grace of God will not keep you. The will of God will not lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. That's how the prophets lived their life. They said we will be obedient to the will of God even if it takes us into a drought, even if it takes us into a lion's den, even if it takes us into a fiery furnace because where the will of God leads us, the grace of God will keep us. Oh, but when I think about the prophets, James doesn't use this word, but I think in the back of his mind he must be thinking about the prophet par excellence. He must be considering big brother Jesus because Jesus endured suffering and all the while he was obedient. In fact, Paul will write that Jesus was obedient unto death death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. James is telling the congregation, be patient like a prophet, because that patience like a prophet doesn't mean that God's going to keep you from stuff but it does mean that it'll keep you through stuff. Because sometimes you may find yourself in the midst of a drought, spiritually speaking or physically speaking. Sometimes you may find yourself in a lion's den. You may even find yourself in a fiery furnace or maybe you may find yourself being crucified with Christ. But regardless, don't miss the lesson of the prophets. While they waited in patience, they witnessed. They continued to witness about the goodness and the greatness of God. When you find yourself in the midst of trouble and tragedy, when you find yourself in the midst of suffering, you continue to testify, continue to witness about the mighty, majestic mercy of God Almighty because God is good all the time and all the time God is good. I wish somebody could help me this morning and simply testify that God has been good to me. God has brought me to some stuff and God has brought me through some stuff and all the while I just want to testify to the goodness and the greatness of God. James tells the church, I want you to have the patience not just of a farmer and the patience not just of the prophets, but I want you to have the patience of Job. Out of all biblical characters, it would seem that Job is most synonymous with persevering in the midst of suffering. Job's story is a 42-chapter book. Job is described as a man who is blameless and upright. Anybody else want to be described that way? Job is described as a man who shunned evil, obeyed God. Anybody want to be described that way? I mean, Job is one of the good guys of the Old Testament. And in one day, Job suffered tragedy upon tragedy. He lost to death his seven sons and his three daughters. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
and 500 donkeys. Can you imagine the grief and the pain of going to the funeral of all of your children and walking in the sanctuary and seeing 10 caskets lined up? Can you imagine the pain of that parent, the grief of those family members? We know something in the reading of Job that Job didn't know. God had been talking about Job behind his back. If you knew that God was talking about you behind your back, would you have a beef with God? God was talking about Job. Apparently, the devil had roamed throughout the world, gained an audience with God, uh, went to heaven and said, have you considered your servant Job? The only reason he loves you and serves you is because of your protective custody over him. You remove your hand of blessing, he'll curse you. And God said to the devil, you don't know Job as well as I know Job. Go ahead, give it your best shot, but you can't take his life. The devil gleefully went away. In a matter of 48 hours, Job lost his family, his fortune, the farm. The next day, he woke up and he had painful sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He didn't do anything wrong, yet he was being attacked by the adversary. Eventually, uh, his wife gave him some (laughs) solid advice. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, thank you, honey. I really appreciate that support and encouragement, but I really think I'll just sit here and pray a little bit longer. You know what's ironic to me is that in 48 hours, Job lost everything that mattered most to him, but somehow his wife managed to survive. I guess that's another sermon for another day. (laughs) Don't need to chase that rabbit this morning. Job's three friends showed up. At first they sat there in silence. That's the best thing they did. You know, sometimes when your friend is grieving, the best thing you can have is a ministry of presence. Don't open your mouth. It'll mess it up. Eventually, those three friends started speaking. That's the worst thing they did in the whole story. Job and his friends start speaking in chapter 3. There's nonsense, dribble, and babble for 35 chapters. God never says anything for 35 chapters. God doesn't speak at all until chapter 38. God speaks in chapter 38. By the time you get to the end of chapter 42, which James references in our passage of James chapter 5, by the time you get to the end of chapter 42, God had doubly blessed Job. So that at the end of his life, he had 14,000 sheep. And he had 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And seven more sons and three more daughters. When you get to those lines in chapter 42, you might expect for Job to receive 14 sons and six daughters because everything's doubled, right? Well, the reality is, with that additional seven sons and additional three daughters, he 
did have 14 sons and six daughters. Because any believing parent who's ever had to stand at the casket of a believing child, you know that child is not dead. You know that child has just moved to dresses and gone home to heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. By the end of Job's life, he did have 14 sons and six daughters. God is merciful, James says. God is compassionate. All you have to do is look at the life of Job. Yet there's somebody in the crowd this morning who asked the question, yeah, but if God is so merciful and if God is so good and if God is so compassionate, why did Job have to go through all that junk? Why do you have to have all that grief? Why all that loss? Why all that sickness and why all that sadness? If God is so good, then why would somebody like Job, upright, blameless, have to walk through all of those valleys of the shadow of death? Well, friend, if you're asking those questions, let me tell you, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. There are a lot of people that have asked those questions, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled trying to answer those questions. And I'll just suffice it to say this. God may not keep you from it, but he will keep you through it. And sometimes the best tool that God has to help us persevere is pain. I think that sometimes there are things we would not learn in pleasure. And the only way we can learn it is by enduring pain. I think that sometimes God is, he's not being vindictive. He, he's not being mean-spirited. No, he's saying, I, I'm going to permit this to happen because I have a, a goal to promote. So I will permit this because as you endure this suffering, I will be with you. And as you walk through this valley, you will not do it by yourself. And I will be right beside you. And you will learn lessons in pain that you would have never learned in pleasure. Don't miss the lesson of Job, my friend. Because James lifts up Job as an example to us of suffering and being patient in that suffering. That while Job was suffering... All the while he was worshiping. Just read his story. And time after time after time he's worshiping. Chapter 1. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 13. Job says, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. What worship to say unto God, God, even if you slay me, even if you take my life. I will still trust, hope, and believe in you. You get to Job chapter 23, and Job simply says, the Lord knows the way that I take. When he has got done testing me, I will come forth as pure gold. Job had to endure the suffering for God to be glorified and for Job to be purified. God, when you finish this, I will come forth as pure gold because you're removing the dross. You're removing the impurities out of my life. Friends, James, uh, before he ends the book, he gets back to this subject of suffering. 
in your suffering, in your tragedy, in your difficulty, in your uh, tragic life experiences, be patient. Be patient. Stay put. Stand fast. Even when you feel like running away. Don't forget the example of the farmer. While he waited, he was working. Don't forget the example of the prophets. While they were waiting, they were witnessing. Don't forget the example of Job. While he was waiting, he was worshiping. So in every moment of every day, you work, you witness, you worship until Jesus peeks over that eastern sky. Keep working, keep witnessing, keep worshiping until Jesus splits the sky. Let's not forget that Jesus is the example of all of this from the night that he was betrayed. He prayed and had sweats of uh, drops of blood uh, falling to the ground and Jesus prayed and he said, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, all the while, he worked till he said it is finished. He witnessed saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And he worshiped into thy hands. I commit my spirit. And Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost. You know the rest of the story, don't you? On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And then later, he ascended into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of the Father until the Father says to his son, go get the church. So as we work, and as we witness, and as we worship, let's always peek towards that eastern sky. Because one day, Jesus will come back. James says, be patient until the Lord's coming. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give this invitation, and Lord, I don't know what everybody's going through, but you do. And I just have a holy hunch that some people are going through some tough stuff. And while they're walking through it today, remind them they're not alone. While they're walking through it today, just remind them that you will help them to have patience until you come back to get them. So Father, we thank you for being so good. Lord, if there's one here who needs to trust you as Savior, let it be done today. Somebody needs to join the church, let it happen today. Somebody needs to come for prayer, let them come today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Behold the cross, age to age, and hour by hour. The dead are raised, the sinners saved, the
Church, as you're being seated, I'm going to ask for Miss Barbara Hood to come and stand with me. Miss Barbara, you do not need me to tell you this, but I am proud of you. <laughs> and I love you. And I love you. Thank you. I know you have umpteen Bibles, <laughs> but I want to give you this Bible given on this day for your baptism given by First Baptist Pelham by Pastor Davin um, as a memorial, as a memory uh, that, that this day was so significant for you and for us. And I am so glad, um, I'm so glad you came by to have that meeting with me and to, to, to make this request. And so church, if you promise uh, to pray for Miss Barbara, to serve Christ alongside her, let it be known however you see fit. Before we're dismissed, I believe that we have a video for Operation Christmas Child. Um, just one more reminder that we need to bring some boxes. We need to bring some boxes. We need to bring some boxes that are filled with some great things. So take a moment and turn your attention to the screen. The countdown happens and the cheers just erupt everywhere. They jump up with joy. They jump up with smiles. <laughs> They've just now got their boxes. They're opening them and it is so much fun. This could be the first present that they've ever received. Operation Christmas Child gifts really touches children's heart. <laughs> During distribution, we tell children that there is a God who created us and who loved us. Jesus loves you. Ah, good. <laughs> Isn't it incredible to see the impact these simple gifts are making in the lives of children all over the world? What amazes me the most is the miracles in each box. Jesus said, let them come to me. And we're in the middle of bringing the children to Jesus. Many children around the world still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So keep packing. Thank you for your continued support, and God bless.
All right, so Franklin Graham said, keep packing, keep packing. All right, so let's do that. We'll bring about 800 more boxes with us next Sunday, okay? Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good to us. Help us to be patient even when we don't feel like it. And Father, thank you for your word, which is so timely and so appropriate. So thank you for moving upon the heart and mind of Pastor James to write down this book. Uh, We benefit from it, and we thank you for it. Lord, help us to walk out of here uh, eager to do what you want us to do until that eastern sky splits wide open. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, church. See you next time.